0: You might have caught from our song choice today that we might be talking about Jesus some. (laughs) We're continuing in our series from the Gospel of John, The Message Became Flesh. A lot of you probably know what the Latin phrase carpe diem means. Probably not because you've studied Latin, but because you have seen the movie Dead Poets Society, or at least clips from it. Um, it's interesting how that phrase has kind of become common knowledge uh, because of that movie. Seize the day. And it, it's from this scene, uh, the teacher in that movie, played by Robin Williams, is in there's a, a very impactful scene in which he's reminding his students that their life is short. They're going to be here for just a limited period of time, and they only have that short period of time to do something with the life they've been given. And Robin Williams challenges his students in this movie to not squander that gift, but to actually do something significant with their lives. Seize the day. That's kind of what Jesus is going to be talking to his disciples about in the passage we're looking at today. We're in John chapter 9... Verses 1 through 7. I've titled the message Carpe Diem. Give me a second. Okay. Oh, sorry. Let's read verse 1 and 2. And passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this one or his parents, that he was born blind? Now we have finally uh, reached the end of the long rambling discussion back and forth in chapters 7 and 8. I think in previous weeks I might have said it included chapter 6. If, if I did say that, I apologize. It's chapters 7 and 8 that deal with when Jesus uh, is in the Feast of Tabernacles and he, he draws on two significant bits of imagery that were part of the Feast of Tabernacles at the time. Every morning they would get water from the pool of Siloam and bring it to the feet of the altar in front of the temple and pour it out there. And it was their way of recognizing that God provides them with water, which is what is necessary for all their crops to grow and all the production that they have and the life that uh, is sustained by water. They are grateful. They don't pray to any other God. They don't depend on nature. They don't depend on a mother earth they depend on Yahweh for Life and provision. And another part of their celebration was that every night they lit chandeliers in the court of women, which is where all Jews were allowed. And uh, on the steps uh, leading, leading up from the court of women, musicians would set up and they would sing praises all night long throughout the feast, celebrating the goodness of God. And they would dance and praise before the Lord in a, a very strong uh, contrast to the kind of debauchery involved in nighttime festivals with Greeks and uh, their pagan festivities. Uh, They celebrated light in the midst of darkness. And Jesus in this feast has said, I am the light of the cosmos. This thing you are celebrating at night, it's me. I am everything good come to you in the flesh. I am life itself. And he also in this feast has said, if you come to me, I will cause living waters to flow from within you forever. I will be a source of water and life eternal in you. So Jesus has very deliberately drawn on the imagery of this festival during this time. And throughout this, all he's been met with from the religious leadership is absolute rejection, arguing debating, trying to undermine and undercut and reject every single thing Jesus has been saying in two long chapters, seven and eight. Now we finish all of that and this is the concluding event of this uh, encounter, this Feast of Booths. He's done talking with them so he walks by and we're going to have kind of an object lesson that goes with all that's being discussed in this time. He sees a blind man. And this guy, it's not that somehow he uh, uh, had some diabetes and uh, lost his eyesight or had an accident. No, this guy was born blind. This guy has never once in his life seen anything. And his disciples see the man, and they ask Jesus a question. I'm sure they saw him and thought, wow, that is that's horrible to, to be uh, from the moment of birth have to deal with that shortcoming, that that uh, in, incapacity, and especially in a world in antiquity, there was no such thing as Braille. They didn't have stoplights with audio, audio signals and stuff. There, there was no accommodation made for the blind in antiquity, except that in the Law of Moses, you were told not to trip up the blind because God doesn't like it. But beyond that, there there wasn't any help. Uh, society-wise for the blind. It must have been an excruciatingly difficult life for this man. And the disciples see that, and they think, wow, what a horrible thing to have happen to somebody. And they say to Jesus, Rabbi, teacher, who sinned? This one, or his parents, that he was born blind. This was the assumption, not only among Jews, but basically among everybody at this time. That if you had something horrible like this, blindness or some horrible uh, disease or something, that that happened to you because in some way you had offended. If you were a pagan, you had offended the gods or at least one of the gods. You had done something that uh, offended them and they punished you with this. For the Jews, it was Yahweh. There was only one God and he meted out justice to people. So when people sinned, he brought uh, retribution to bear on them sometimes in the form of illness. So their question is, whose sin caused this? And the reason this is a a head-scratcher is that neither answer they come up with sounds very good. Maybe it was this guy who was born blind. Maybe he sinned, and that's why he was born blind. And here's the question. What exactly can a fetus do to so outrage God that he punishes him with lifelong blindness. How do you go about offending God so profoundly when you can't even speak? When you can't even interact with the world around you. You can't even touch or do anything physically with the world around you. You're just sitting there. What could this fetus have possibly done, this unborn child, to have been born blind? That's an odd thing to happen. Well, maybe it wasn't that. Maybe God is punishing the parents. Maybe the parents did something horrendous, and God is punishing them. But you know, that's not a good option either. If the parents sinned, why does the child have to bear the, the punishment? He didn't sin. Why should he have to be the one born blind? And yes, surely having a blind child at this time in in the world would probably be a great hardship parents very painful and not only because of the hardships of trying to raise him but also the, the uh, looks of people around them like the disciples who are wondering what in the world did some of this, somebody in this family did something horrendous to cause this to happen can you imagine dealing with that as parents yeah that's horrible but it's not near as horrible as being the one that's actually born blind why should he have to pay for his parents sin doesn't sound right. Here's the interesting thing. In all of this, the disciples have just recently seen Jesus heal a paralytic of 38 years. 38 years of paralytic. And Jesus healed him. We know to this day that paralysis is something we haven't figured out how to fix. You snap your spine, we can't fix that. But Jesus fixed it. It's odd to note how little compassion the disciples seem to have for this man. You know, in Jewish life in the first century, there were three pillars of Jewish life. The Torah, worship at the temple, and almsgiving. We're not told that the disciples gave him anything, which they would have considered their duty as worshiping Jews who had come to the temple and are now returning from the temple area, uh, At least give him something to live off of. They're not interested in helping the guy. They just want to know the answer to this big theological question. That kind of disinterested interest in people. Like they're insects on a pen. And we're just looking at them. Trying to figure them out. Some people talk about people that way. Some people talk about God that way. Uh, One of the things that most frustrates me about philosophy of religion is that people talk about God like he's a thing. Just something we construct in our own minds. And we can just kind of with detachment say all this about it uh, or about him. That's kind of the way the disciples are are doing this. I would describe them as ivory tower theologians. Sometimes uh, we can fall into this where we get so caught up in the logic of our theology and figuring out everything and how it all fits together that we are completely unmoved by the suffering of people around us. We don't see them as people in need of compassion and help. We see them as case studies. As uh, research topics, who sinned this one or his parents? You know, they could have said, "Jesus, couldn't you heal this guy?" That's not what they asked Jesus. They have this morbid curiosity to answer this big theological question. I have a question. From these verses, Jesus' disciples showed an academic interest in the life of the man blind from birth. How have you shown unhelpful interest in those suffering around you? I think we can do the same. Let's keep reading verse 3. Jesus answered, neither this one sinned nor his parents. Rather, it was so that the works of God would be made known in him. Jesus says, you've got it wrong. Those two options you thought were the only two possible options? It's neither one of those things. Now Jesus isn't suggesting that this man and his parents are sinless. He's just saying as to the question of whose sin caused this blindness, he says nobody's. Or at least none of these three peoples. Their sin is not the reason this child was born blind. It's not that the child has sinned and that's why he was born blind. It's not that the parents sinned and that's why he was born blind. Sometimes suffering happens and it's not directly tied to the person's suffering and what they've done. Sometimes you earn it. A lot of pain in life is self-inflicted. The man who had been paralyzed 38 years after healed him, Jesus found him and said, Don't sin anymore lest something worse happens to you. So in his case, that guy, he somehow broke his back doing something he shouldn't be doing. And Jesus says, You've got a second chance. Don't blow it. Sometimes terrible things happen to us because we did it to ourselves. But a lot of times it has nothing to do with anything we've done. This is one of the deep philosophical questions we have about God. We can kind of get suffering when it's deserved. But how do we explain the suffering of children? Children born with, with suffering. Why Why does that kind of thing happen? And one of the big complaints to God is the idea of unjust suffering. Suffering that is not punishment, is not deserved, it just happens. Jesus gives us an answer. And here's, I think, in the big picture of the Bible. This goes back to Noah. We are told there was a moment in the history of the world where wickedness was at such a point that there was only one man on the face of the earth who loved God. One man. I can't imagine how dark that moment in history was. And God loved Noah and rescued Noah. You know, at that point, god uh, we're told God regretted making us. He regretted creating humankind. He could have just said, I'm done with all the evil and all the senseless suffering and all the ways in which this world is broken and messed up. I'm just going to wipe the slate clean, erase everything, and start all over. As creator, that's his right. You're building a sculpture. You don't like how it is. You can tear that clay down to a lump again and start all over. It's your prerogative as creator. God could have done that. But instead, he took Noah and said, build an ark. He put his rainbow in the sky and said, I'm never again doing this. God committed himself to redeem creation. So, he's allowed it to continue the way it is. And horrible things continue to happen. Things that are not fair. Things that are not right. Things that are evil continue to happen in creation. And God has allowed it. You know why? Not because he doesn't care. Not because it doesn't wound him as creator that these things are going on in his creation. But because he has committed to redeem. He's allowed it to continue so that more than one person could participate in eternity. It could have just been Noah. Thank God there are more of us because God has chosen to tolerate the suffering. But here's what Jesus is telling us. In every point of suffering, God is at work. God inserts himself in human suffering and extends an invitation to redemption and rescue. Every single unjust thing that goes on in the world, God has stepped into and is there waiting for an opening, an opportunity to bring redemption to bear. Sometimes we just try to look to find the guilty party so we can feel good about ourselves and look down on the poor sinners who are suffering so badly because they're bad parents or bad husbands or wives or bad children and that's why things are happening to them. That kind of interest is useless and it's not the kind of interest God shows in our suffering. God is at work in our suffering. Why was this man born blind Because this was going to become an arena in which God would work. That's it. Sometimes suffering is as simple as that. God is going to work in it. I have a question from this verse. Jesus said God was displaying his works in the life of the man born blind. How have you observed God at work in your suffering? Let's keep reading verse 4. We must work the works of the one who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one is able to work. As long as I am in the cosmos, I am light of the cosmos. Jesus kind of reorients his disciples. And I love that this story is as much about this man born blind and what Jesus is doing in his life as it is about Jesus teaching his disciples. Jesus could have just healed the man and said, see, that's what I'm talking about. God's at work. But he turns around before he heals the man and says, I need to teach you guys something about this. We must Work the works of the one who sent me. We absolutely must. Not just me, Jesus, we must work the works of the one who sent me, the Father who sent me. God is at work in suffering, and that is where we need to be hard at work. We have to. preparing this week to preach it 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 hits me how disinterested i am about the suffering of others at times how easily i just walk right past it and don't see that as the place god expects me to step in and bring not explanations not unhelpful advice not morbid curiosity but actual healing Jesus says, you guys need to be doing what I am doing right now. The night is coming. That's an obscure statement. What exactly does he mean? He talks about as long as I am in the cosmos, I am light of the cosmos. I illuminate creation as long as I'm here. Now, if he were just talking about his physical presence, he's about to be gone. He's, within a few short months, crucifixion will happen. Shortly after that, he will ascend to the Father. So, in terms of Jesus physically present in creation, uh, he will be absent. But if he were saying that when I'm gone physically, the time to work is done, then it would not make any sense for John to even write this down for us because by the time he's writing this, it's been decades since Jesus ascended to the Father. This instruction would have no use if we're already in that night where nobody can work. I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think he's talking about that this creation in the state of night that it is, or the state of darkness, I'm sorry, that it is, is going to be this way only for a limited amount of time. We only have so long to bring God's goodness to bear on the suffering around us. We have a limited window of opportunity for two reasons. One is we don't know how long we've got here. We don't know how long our lives individually are going to last. We don't know how many breaths we have left. We don't know how many heartbeats remain on this ticker. So that is a limited resource. We must not squander every opportunity we have to insert the healing of God in the suffering around us. We are commanded by Jesus to be at work doing what God is at work doing. Joining God in that work. The other reason we have limited time is we know this creation will not continue like this forever. There is a final day. There is a day in which Christ will intervene and the elements themselves will be consumed by fire and we will have new heavens and new earth and the opportunity to deal with the suffering and the sin around us will be gone because it'll be er 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 eradicated from creation. We have a limited window of opportunity in which to insert ourselves in the work before us now. Let me keep reading verses 6 and 7. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud from the spit, and from it applied mud on the eyes. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Having instructed the disciples, Jesus turns and shows how God is at work in this man's life. He does the kind of thing only God can do. He heals him. But I think it's very interesting to observe how he heals him. First of all, he spits on the ground, makes mud out of it, and smears it on his eyes. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the man born blind. What do you think your immediate reaction to that would be? You hear somebody spit, and the next thing you feel is somebody smearing mud on your eyes. I I suspect, I, I, I wasn't there, but I suspect that might have been slightly unpleasant. Nobody enjoys getting spit on their face. Nobody, not even back then. Uh, in fact, for Jews, spit or blood, anything that comes out of a person defiles you. Uh, so it, and, but it's, it's interesting how Jesus always flipped those things, right? The woman with the flow of blood, who, anybody who touched her would have been defiled. She touches the border of Jesus' garment. And instead of Jesus becoming defiled, she becomes clean and Restored. The leper, who anybody he touched would become defiled, Jesus touches him. And he doesn't defile Jesus. Jesus purifies him and restores him to community. And Jesus has a way of taking the defiled and turning it into the holy. So he uses this kind of gross mud. I mean, mud is not great as it is, but spit mud is probably... Lower on the scale of muds you might want to have on your face. Applies it to the eyes. And this guy could have taken offense. It's not bad enough that I was born blind. You have to make fun of me. What kind of cruel act is this? He could have taken offense. Certainly the people Jesus has just been talking to for two chapters have been taking offense at every single thing he's said. He could have taken offense, but he didn't. And Jesus gives him instructions. Go wash in the pool of Siloam. And here's something odd. Jesus didn't take him there. I don't know how this blind man made his way to the pool at Siloam, but he had to go on his own. That might seem cruel. Go find the pool, wash off there. Again, this pool was tied into the ritual of the Feast of Tabernacles. uh, And I think that's the reason Jesus chooses it. So he sends him there. And uh, here's the amazing thing about this man. He doesn't get upset with Jesus. He doesn't walk off in a puff. He doesn't say, who are you to tell me what to do? He simply does what Jesus told him. Notice that Jesus didn't tell him what would happen once he got there. He didn't say, go wash and you will be healed. He just said, go wash. That's as far as he explained. He went. He washed. He came back seen. Why did Jesus do it this way? When it was the paralytic... He just said, get up. Take your cut. Get out of here. He could have healed him with just a word. Or if he wanted to be more dramatic, he could have laid his hands on his eyes and poof, said, open your eyes. He could have done it a million ways. And this is the way he chose to do it. He healed him in a way that required of him faith. Faith he gave him instructions to follow he did not explain fully what he was doing and it was an invitation to trust to trust that this man who was he probably heard him talking to his disciples who was talking about god wanting to do his work in this man's life he was he said i'm interested in that i'm in I can make my way to Siloam. I can wash off. I can bear with the offense of you putting mud on my eyes. Let's, let's do this. I think sometimes people who are obsessed with God doing miraculous things miss the whole point of them. This guy might have thought being blind is the single most important thing about my life. Fixing that is the most important thing you could fix for me. You know what? It wasn't. This guy needed Jesus more than he needed to see. He needed God. He needed to be restored to the right relationship with his creator that his creator intended for him. That need was greater than his blindness and Jesus healed his blindness in a way that tied the two things together because he's not just going to deal with the superficial. He's not going to put a band-aid on your cancer. He wants to deal with the real issues and even something like being born blind becomes just a metaphor by comparison. He needed To discover a walk of faith with God. And that's how he helped. God inserts himself into our suffering, not just to fix the problem in the short term, but to invite us to the kind of relationship that will bring healing to every area of our lives. Not just this one that we're concerned about. have a final question the way Jesus chose to heal the man born blind required that he trust him and follow his instructions how have you observed Jesus working in your life in ways that build a relationship with him I want to ask in this story who do you identify more with Jesus or the disciples Have you found yourself looking at the suffering around you and just kind of wondering, wow, man, that must suck. Wonder why that's happening to that person. Have you ever caught yourself looking at people that way? Not sharing in the pain? Not really caring? Or are we... Willing to insert ourselves in that suffering the way the Father is, the way Jesus does. You know, He was watching us from above, from beyond the crystal sea, and He came to us. He pierced the veil and became flesh to walk among us in the muck and mire of our suffering. He came. Is that the way we deal with the suffering around us? Do we insert ourselves into it? Not pridefully. Not to offer unhelpful advice. But to actually bring Christ and the healing of Christ into that suffering. Night is coming. Our time is short. I pray we don't squander a single opportunity when we are exposed to suffering around us that we never just look at it with disinterest but that we hear what Jesus said we must work the works of the one who sent Jesus to us. The one who inserts himself in the suffering of the world. We must follow suit Because we do not step into this alone. Jesus is the light of the cosmos. We have light to share. We have life to share. We must seize the day. Let me say a word of prayer. Dear God, thank you so much that you see our suffering and are moved by it. You don't just observe us from afar and say, wow, that must be painful. You come and sit beside us. You inhabit our suffering with us. And you call us to trust you so that you may draw us out of it. Lord, help us to join you in what you are doing, not just in our lives, but in the world there is so much suffering, Lord. Give us compassionate hearts. and Bring your light to bear on the darkness. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.